You are listening to audio recorded at the Village Church. For more information, go to villagechurchbaltimore.com. Online, um, but basically, we're looking at different ways we're connected. And as we saw from the scripture today, today's theme is on marriage. And I want to—we've been saying this every week. Um, the goal of, of these sermons is not for you to say, okay, this is the one week I check out because that's got nothing to do with me. Rather, even if it might not be particularly relevant right now in your life, we want to have a church culture where we say, well, you know what? It's not always going to be exactly about me in every single way. Um, because part of uh, growing to follow Christ is, is knowing in general his word and how we can help people wherever life stage we're at. So we want you to be aware of, of what the Bible says in terms of some of these matters. So that's what we're looking at today. And I want to just give a couple of um, preemptive little, little points here. I think when it comes to marriage, I don't know about you, but often in church, it's like it can be this little factory of fear, guilt, shame. Like, it's like, okay, I don't want to hear anything about this because I already, if I'm, if I'm married, some of us, I I already feel miserable enough when it comes to it. I don't need someone to make me feel worse. Or some of us, um, I mean, I'd like to be there and by you talking about it, it's just making it worse. Or some of you, I've been there and by you talking about it, it's making it worse. And there's just a lot of making it worse, whether again, fear, guilt, or shame. Um, that's not our goal for today because we believe there's freedom when we follow God. We believe there's freedom in His Word and we want this to be a safe place where we can engage in real stuff. So here's my goal for today. Here's my kind of approach. My goal is not like the six ways you can have a biblical perfect marriage. I wish. If you've got that message, give it to me because I would like to apply it to my own life. That's, that's not my goal and how I'm approaching it. Not that I don't think there are some helpful principles, but rather um, I, I hope there's some practical things here even today. But I want to lay out more of a bigger picture from Scripture as to what this thing called marriage is supposed to be as it shows us more about God and ourselves. So that's our approach. Um, And just talk about marriage, obviously, in our news cycle, in our current culture, just the even thought of marriage, especially biblical marriage, um, it it feels like it's so countercultural to our modern society, right? People might even say, well, that's just got no more relevancy to talk about marriage in such archaic terms. But what I'm going to suggest for us today, that the design for marriage that we see from Scripture it's not just countercultural for people today. It's like always been countercultural. It's like always gone against the grain to consider this idea of a man and woman coming together in union in this thing called marriage. It's never made sense. It's beautiful. It's God's design. But it's never been like this natural kind of flowing thing where people of the world say, oh, yeah, that, that sounds good. It, it's not. So we're going to jump into it that way. And again, a lot of my uh, studies come from Porterbrook Network, which has helped with a lot of the just fleshing out of these thoughts. But Carrie read for us from Genesis chapter 2, 1824. So I'm not going to read the whole thing again. But I did want to highlight the one verse there uh, in verse 24, where it says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And I think there's this true significance of this idea of two becoming one flesh of these two very maybe disparate, distinct individuals now committing that they are one flesh. And in a world where our independence is sometimes the most important thing to us, I mean, we're good Americans, right? Boom, don't tread on me. Independence is one of the core values of our society. Um, This is a highly radical statement to say two become one. That God would create this union of marriage where two souls would unite and mingle 
to become this whole, like, entirely new entity in itself. That's a really, really radical statement. And, and maybe, biblically, the best way to describe this kind of relationship is this idea of covenant. Covenant. And covenant is one of those words that you just don't use nowadays. You know, you don't go up to a friend and say, I would like to enter a covenant of friendship with you. They'll just think you're one of those wacky, um, you know, whatever, and, and just say, yeah, you go covenant on your own, by yourself. Maybe the nearest way we can understand, especially, I mean, we don't use that word, is maybe like contract. Like uh, this idea that in marriage we make promises of commitment. Um, and often in most cultures these are legally binding. So there's almost like a contractual thing. But the problem with contract is that it sounds like a business arrangement, right? And I don't know too many people are looking across the aisle from someone on the way and say, oh, I'm, man, I'm eager to enter this business arrangement with you. This is going to improve my 401k. And uh, maybe some do. But obviously a covenant of marriage is much more than just that. And here's a few ways that maybe we can understand what covenant, a covenant of marriage, would look like, how it would be expressed. One way of covenant is uh, marriage is a covenant of companionship. Marriage is a covenant of companionship. Um, There are different views of marriage, right? Some Christians, they would say that marriage, ultimately the goal of marriage is procreation. That, that the command given in places like Genesis 128, where it says, be fruitful and multiply, that is the main core of marriage. You're supposed to have babies, and you're supposed to make and fill the world. And, and I believe what this command does say is that all marriages should be open to the prospect of having children. That, that if, a, if a couple's seeking to follow God and they want to get married, but they don't want to have children, I think you got to wrestle with that. I think you got to wrestle it because we would see that the context is that children would come through a marriage. However, we need to be mindful that marriage is more, far more than just having children. It's not just about children, as important as it is, because if it's, if it's the truth, if that's what it is, then childless marriages would somehow be lesser marriages, and they're not. I mean, they're not. And, and there's another strand. Some other Christians, they would say marriage Man, it's ultimately for protection, you know, like protecting yourself. Like they'll, you'll use passages like 1 Corinthians 7, 9, where it says it's better to marry than to burn with lust. Like if you're burning with lust, then, you know, we don't have to go into what that looks like. I mean, everyone burns with lust in different ways. If you're burning with lust, y'all get married so you can have an outlet for that. Um, again, we want to affirm marriage. It, it's the proper context for sexuality to be expressed in intercourse between a man and a woman. So, uh, again, sex, I think, done rightly, I think there's a lot of uh, joy in the safe relationship of a marriage. But as much as good sex um, hopefully would be part of a marriage, marriage is more than just sanctified sex. We need to know that. And a lot of people who are not married, like their hope is, I want to get married so I can do it right, right? Because I don't want to, I don't want to guilt anymore. And I, so I'm going to get married so I can be like sanctified. Um, just a pastoral word. If you struggle with, say, lust or maybe pornography as a single person, getting married will not be the answer for that because it's a hard issue. It's a hard issue. Just having someone will not necessarily make those things go away. It goes deeper than that. Marriage is more than just sanctified sex. Because marriage, the, the call to be for this man and woman to come together, it was given before there was this thing called sin. You were called to be together before there was this temptation of these different matters. So it's more than just a way to cope with sinful lust. 
So I, I want to suggest more than those things, more than just procreation, more than just kind of like protection. And in a way, I would suggest in Genesis 2.18, as we saw here, we see the purpose of marriage. It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. That marriage primarily is given for companionship, along with some of those other good things, but primarily it's for companionship. So when we look, and we're not going to dig too much in it, we have a lot to cover. Creation was good. God made it. He said things were good. He said things were very good. But what we find is even as things were very good, one thing could be better. That man was alone and it was not good. And God then ordained this new relationship so that man would not be alone. And as we looked at a couple of weeks ago when we were looking at a singlehood, this is a universal thing. I would say the principles here are not just about marriage, right? Um, that every single one of us, whatever our life station is, we need relational connection. But for some of us, that companionship might be found through the marriage covenant. To have a companion. Uh, Song of Solomon, right? If you ever think the Bible is boring, just pick it up, open it up to the middle and find Song of Solomon. Just start reading. You'll be like, man, my youth pastor never preached on this, right? Song Solomon, chapter 8, verse 10. It reads, I was a wall. And my breasts were like towers. Then I was in his eyes and one who finds peace. And a lot of times we'll read a verse like that. We can't get beyond breasts, right? We're just like, whoa, that's, that's in there. But go to the second part there. As she describes in his eyes as one who finds peace. That this woman, this beloved, she's describing that she is the one who brings her beloved, who brings this man peace. This idea of shalom. She brings the shalom to this man. And shalom is more than just mere peace. But it's this larger concept of rest, of of contentment, of wholeness, of, of completeness. That she's declaring she is the one who makes him whole and complete. She's a companion for him. So we see that there's a covenant of companionship. We also see... In marriage, when you talk about covenant, it's a covenant of love. Marriage is also a covenant of love. So in the Bible, covenant, again, it's so much more than just this contractual agreement. It's more than just the bottom line of that. But the Bible, they have a special word for what kind of covenant this is. It's called chesed. And, and that's a word that means covenant love, steadfast love. The kind of love that God describes for his beloved. In Song of Solomon, again, chapter 8. Verses 6 to 7, it says, Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. For love is strong as death, jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. Whoa. That's beautiful. That's like poetry. I mean, you have permission to use that for Valentine's Day. If you need to write something in a card, just write, yo, I, I, God inspired me with this. Like, you can do that. Um, and, and it's significant because in the context of that day when marriage was often a forced, maybe um, kind of agreed upon, arranged thing, these words in Song of Solomon here, but throughout, it was a celebration of passionate, romantic love. It was saying it was not just an agreement Um, brought by two parents. But it was a passionate, a fiery kind of thing. That the beauty of marriage then, it's a combination of this real binding promise that's there. There's a commitment there. There's a, there's, it's a loving relationship. It's described here as a love 
as death, but one that's publicly sealed. So it's deep emotions, it's visceral feelings, but it's also bound together within um, the, the just this binding relationship. So there's commitment and there's fire together. So staying married then, what it's saying, a covenant, a marriage, it's not just about staying in love, but it's about keeping a covenant promise. It's not even just about feeling something for someone, but it's committing to that promise that you're going to be with that person because that's what you've agreed to. It means that love, it's, it's a choice, not just a feeling. And, and some of you, maybe if you've been married for a little while, you know this, because as, as much as you would like to say the feeling is always there, it's not. <laughs> it's not. Sometimes every fiber of you is saying, seriously, this is the one you've committed your whole life to? And you remember the covenant promise to say yes. Yes. And I love yesterday, we had a, we had a great meeting um, over at the Wilkinson's house to hear from some refugees in Baltimore describing their experience. And, and Daniel, he was sharing about some of the myths of refugee resettlement, that it sucks resources away from our country, which it's actually not true that there are studies that say the more you invest in in refugees, they will work hard and it'll bring back much more yield. It will actually contribute to the larger benefit of the nation, but that doesn't happen right away. It takes a while. It takes investment. It takes a lot of hard work but eventually you see the product of it. I thought that was such a beautiful picture for life itself, right? That we don't always see things happening right away, but the investment leads to something else. And I think in marriage, you see this so clearly, that when you choose to be with someone, and you're not just going by the feelings, because sometimes early on, especially for couples that struggle, early years are you're getting to know each other, you're like, I never knew another person could be so sinful, and they're thinking the same thing about you. You're just shocked at how immoral one another are, right? But what happens is, as you grow together, you start to just grow as people, start to grow as this unit. They've even got statistics that say it takes a man about 10 years of marriage before they finally stop thinking about themselves first. And I can test to that. That's, that's pretty spot on, right? Like, something happens... And you don't automatically, how does this affect me? Oh, that doesn't make me feel good. Oh, I'm so unhappy right now. But after about 10 years, you, you get programmed to start to think, how does this affect my, my spouse? How does this affect this other person? But that takes a while. And that's why you often see couples that have been together for a, for a longer period, like the joy just continues to grow. And we live in a culture where it says, you know, you have the most joy in marriage when you're like, it's your first three weeks or something. And so it's all downhill from there. I used to know joy and then I met someone who stole it. I mean, just weird concepts in our society where it's the exact opposite. That when we see marriage that's based in covenant, you commit to this person. And and as you grow in Christ together, it actually deepens the marital bonds. I mean, I used to hear things before I was married where, um, where, where men, and I, yeah, men, women, and men and women do this, but men particularly would say, you know what, I look at my wife of 50 years and she looks as beautiful to me as the day I married her. And I'm a cynical guy, so I, man, he's just saying that because he doesn't want to get in trouble. Like, <laughs> <laughs> no, how could that, that's not going to be true when there's like, you know, body parts moving <laughs> and like wrinkles where there are, you, I, you know, how does that work? I will say for truth, I look at my wife now, and I'm not doing this because I know it's recorded, and I don't want to get. 
it's a mystery how I look at her, and she is as beautiful as the day I met her, and if not more. There's something that happens. I think it's, I think it's kind of spiritual. It's like passages like rejoice in the wife of your youth. I think what the Holy Spirit does is as we pray for our marriage, he gives us imagination. He gives us, because, I mean, it's not like you look at a person and like, oh, it's like a weird matrix thing where you see like a 20. No. You see reality. But what God gives you eyes is to see the wife of your youth, to be enamored still in the same way. But that comes with time. It comes with time. And, and I think it's a good word for all of us here, maybe particularly if you're not married, why it's important to guard not just our sexual purity outside of marriage, but also our heart as well. That if you're not married, and we talked about this the other week, right? Don't act like you're already married with someone. Physically, but also emotionally. Relationally. Don't give your heart to someone that you have not committed. As Dr. Smith so eloquently talked about last week, quoting our uh, our national voice, Beyonce, you know, wait till there's a, a ring on it, right? <laughs> this idea, don't give away the benefits of marriage to another without receiving the covenantal commitment of marriage. Don't give away the benefits of marriage without receiving and knowing the covenantal commitments that you've agreed to in marriage together. One more way where we see covenant marriage, and, and that's the covenant, a marriage covenant as an echo of God's covenant relationship with his people. Like when we see marriage covenant here between man and woman, it gives us an echo of the larger covenant that God has with his people, his bride. And just a lot of scriptures that talk about Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 8, where it says, when I passed by you again, this is, this is God, right, describing God. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. If you didn't know better, you thought this was a dude talking about a woman. This is God talking about his people. And, and when we think about this relationship this way as marriage, um, the unfaithfulness, then, of God's people is described as adultery. And again, some stuff that we wouldn't think is in the Bible, it's, it's there. In Hosea chapter 2, starting in verse 2. Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband, that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born, and make her like a wilderness, and make her like a parched land, and kill her with thirst. Upon her children also I will have no mercy, because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore, she who conceived them has acted shamefully, for she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns and I will build a wall against her so she cannot find her paths. So she shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me than that now. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for bail. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time, and my wine in its season. I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages, which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. And I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals, when she burned offerings to them, and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry, and went after her lovers, and forgot me, 
declares the Lord. That's deep. That's a God saying, I chose this nation to be my pride. I gave them everything they would ever need. I loved them. I covered them. I protected them. I delivered them. What did they do? They went off and skipped out on me. If that's what you want, go have it. It's in the language of relationship, of marriage. And and this is such a bigger picture than some people have of Christianity, where the Christian faith is just about like obeying rules in some playbook. No wonder it's so lame. We We don't get the sight of this, of a relationship that God has with his beloved, that he has gone to the ends of the earth to have. But here's the thing that just... It just floors me that even in the midst of that unfaithfulness, God also promises to take his people as his bride. I mean, look at what follows immediately after what I just read there. After this indictment of real adultery. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth and the earth shall answer the grain, the wine and the oil and they shall answer Jezreel and I will sow her for myself in the land and I will have mercy on no mercy and I will say to not my people, you are my people and he shall say, you are my God. What a picture of chesed, steadfast covenant love to a people unfaithful, to a people who will go chase after anything else that looks desirable at the moment, that this God will go and make her a people for himself, a bride for himself. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Again, steadfast, steadfast faithfulness to a bride who seeks after every guy out there. This bridegroom is saying, I will be the faithful one. I will purchase what it costs. I will be your faithful one. And, you know, when it comes to the end of the world, can we say Christians get a little weird? I mean, they write strange books. They write, they make weird movies. I mean, sometimes we get a little, um, a little weird about the end of the world. But one thing that I love in the Bible is that the biblical story ends with a marriage. I love it. That God's new world is described as a wedding banquet. It's a wedding banquet. It's a feast to celebrate the perfect union between God's people and God's son. He's a proud papa. He's like, my son gets to have these people as his bride. Let's celebrate for eternity. It's all good now. It's all perfect. Dear desires for my son. And it's celebration. That's heaven. Some of you think a little fat angel is like playing a harp on a... No, no, it's a party. It's a bridal party. It's celebration. Revelation 19.9. 
And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. I can't wait. I can't wait. So marriage, what it does is it points us to the relationship that God has with his people. And sometimes that's for really good. When we see healthy marriages, it gives us a glimpse of how much God loves his people, his bride. Sometimes when we see unhealthy marriages, it points us to the pain involved when that relationship is not being lived out correctly. And, and I, I'm going to guess with a room like this, depending on your background and your context, this can be a significant paradigm shift in how we view what marriage is. Because I've often observed, even for Christians, a lot of times the, the way we approach God through marriage is something like, you know, I really need God so I can have a good marriage. Like, it, it's almost like it drives us to come to God saying, man, I really want a good marriage, so I want to go to God because maybe he can help me to do that because it's a struggle for me. And, and, and I, think that's, I think that can happen, but I want to suggest that a more liberating orientation, a more freedom-inducing way to view it is to grasp that marriage is actually given so that we may grow in our relation with God. Like, we have it kind of upside down. That rather that... We, we seek God so we can have a better marriage. Rather, God has given this thing called marriage so we might have a better understanding of who he is and, and, and how much he loves us. Look at Mark chapter 8, 34, starting verse 34 with me. It says, and this is Jesus speaking, calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. So, Christians, we've got a weird understanding of this word countercultural. Like, for a lot of Christians, countercultural means, you know what, the Super Bowl's playing, but they've got some really weird halftime shows. So we're going to do our own thing, and you can go online to find it during the halftime of the worldly halftime show to find, like, a Christian version of it. Or, like, if you like to listen to this artist, but you don't like their lyrics, here's a Christian version of that. It's usually not as good, but here's a Christian version of it. Um, and, and, you know, maybe that's countercultural or, or maybe it's just weird. But I, I think true countercultural is this idea that in a world that tells you pursue everything for your own benefit, that the gospel says deny yourself and that's good news. That's countercultural. In a world that says make it all about you, the good news of Jesus says actually die to yourself, deny yourself, and that's really good news. I mean, it, it sounds nonsensical. That, that doesn't make any sense to me, but that's marriage. That's, that's really what marriage is, because in marriage, we find our lives by giving up our lives. I, 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 yeah, I give away certain freedoms when I get married, but it's to receive the greater joys of covenant love. Yeah, you know what? My possessions and my, my, my belongings, they're no longer just mine anymore if I get married. But I learned a greater joy of mutually sharing with another. Um, I learned that serving another brings me pleasure. Giving up of myself, it leads to greater joy. I mean, it's, it's really counterintuitive. Because we've been programmed in, in our lives to make things so we get what we want. And so often conflict in marriage comes when we approach marriage the same way. That this is another way for me to get what I want. How can I, how can I turn it? And that's when you get two heads like butting together. Um, but marriage 
if we look at it through the biblical paradigm, what it teaches us is that the greatest joy is found in giving. Um, probably one of the greatest, I mean, well, great, I think it's greatest, but one of the most real expressions of this is found in sex, right? That when joy is found, it's, it's by a couple who get pleasure by giving one another pleasure. Um, I love this quote from this uh, work by Ben Patterson. It's called The Goodness of Sex and the Glory of God. And some of you are like, I have never thought of those two concepts in the same thought before. The goodness of sex and the glory of God. But he writes, real lovers know that giving and receiving are a splendid and hilarious paradox in which the giving becomes receiving. The receiving giving until any efforts to sort it out collapse in merriment and adoration. I mean, it's just this idea of working together, of seeking out the well-being of the, of the other and, 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 your, and to give of yourself. That in the context of a safe and protected covenantal marriage relationship, giving up of yourself for the sake of another, it leads to true joy. It brings contentment, leads us into fulfillment. I mean, it's really a picture of submission and love. Uh, it's what we would see in... in and a famous picture of marriage found in Ephesians chapter 5, starting verse 22. Let me read this for us, starting verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So here we see that the relationship between husband and wife, it's compared with the relationship between Christ and his church, his bride. And, And I want to affirm that if we study the scripture, I think throughout the Bible, we talk, we see a lot about mutual love, mutual submission, within the whole body of Christ. I mean, that's what we see right before this in verse 21. It talks about mutual submission, so that's real. But we, we need to also observe here in this passage that the directives, this directive is given to husbands and to wives. And it's speaking specifically about that relationship as compared to the relationship between Christ and, and the church. So it's, it's mutual love, but this is actually not mutual submission. That's not, what, that's not what it's talking about here. But in the relationship that I have with Christ, Christ does not submit to me. It's not a two-way thing here. But what we do see here, and this, I mean, I know this opens up a whole can of worms. I mean, I've had couples getting married that they want this to be the message I preach from for their wedding ceremony. And they're like, yeah, can you preach that? We love it. But can you just take out that part about wives submitting to husbands? I'm like, okay, let's preach from 1 Corinthians 13 for this wedding then, because we're not changing the word of God. It is what it is, but I think the understanding of it has often been twisted in a way that's encouraged um, abuse, patriarchy, domination. I I don't think that's what it's talking about here. I I don't. 
Because what I think, if we boil it down, what it's saying here is, yes, the wife puts her husband's will before her own. That's biblical marriage. But just as much, the husband puts his wife's interest before her, before her own. Before his own. The husband puts his wife's interest before his own. So that though the roles might be different, the attitudes are the same here. That in both, there's even a higher purpose than just serving the other, and that's submitting to Christ and to his greater glory. So here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that if you are married to a man, um, and we're assuming he's a Christian, if, if you're married to a man, and he is just not following God at all, he's like trying to set your family in a way that he hates God, ultimately, submitting to him doesn't mean, okay, well, your word is law, because that's what the Bible says. It might mean challenging him respectfully, gently sometimes, sometimes a little bit more firmly saying, hey, that is not honoring God here. I can't submit to that because that would be actually going against the will of God. So this is not like a a domineering kind of thing here. This is working together for the greater glory of God. For for husbands, it might also mean that though you seek the greater will of your your wife, um, sometimes you might need to say some hard things because it's not just about her happiness, but it's about her holiness. And, And being a biblical husband might mean there are some things that your wife is doing and you just kind of just for the sake of peace in the house, you just want to enable it? Honestly, you don't want to say something? But because you know it's not honoring God, you might have to say something because you believe you love her so much that her holiness is more important sometimes than just her happiness. It's really dying to yourself. And guys, this is countercultural to the age, spirit of our age. I genuinely believe it leads to great joy when lived out in Christ. But I also believe it's sanctification. I think marriage is sanctification. So here's what I think. I think we should try to do this. I think if, if you're married, if you're, if you're seeking for your marriage to be found in Christ, as a wife, you should submit to your husband. If you're a husband, you should die to yourself, just like Jesus died for his bride. You should do these things. Wives, you should ultimately look to lead and to, or to uplift your husband so he can lead your family well. Husbands, you should die to yourself. It's not about you anymore. This is not a, a powerful rule thing. This is Jesus going to a cross. You're called to do that for your bride and for your family. Here's how it's sanctification. Um, if you're like me, you try to do it, and you see how much of a miserable failure wretch you are. You're like, man, I've got this beautiful woman, probably the best person I like to hang out with in this world, but man, I want my will above, my, above hers. <laughs> I, don't wanna, I, I don't wanna die to myself. I wanna do what I wanna do. And, and you're like, I don't wanna submit to this guy. I'll submit to Jesus, because he's Jesus. This guy, heck no. He won't even take out the trash. Submit. And God gives us marriage because it puts us in a place that says, ultimately, we are not able to do the things that we're supposed to do. We don't want to submit because we got pride. We got flesh. And let's be honest, we got someone who might not always be worth submitting to. We don't want to die to ourselves for her. Seriously? Dude, she's gotten crazy since we got married. Man, she's always been crazy. You just were blinded with love. But you can't do these things And you know, at least for me, what it's done is it gets me on my face. It says, God, I am utterly unable to be the husband that I want to be for my wife. 
Lord, if you show me no other reasons I need you, thank you for this, because you're showing me I'm not as sacrificial as I thought I was. You're showing me I'm not as kind and generous and compassionate and tender. Lord, sometimes I get really sharp in my tone when I want something, and I'm tired, and I'm grumpy, and we're not going to eat where I want to eat, and we're not watching what I want to watch, and we're not doing things the way I want to do it. Lord, thank you for reminding me. I'm actually pretty still self-focused. Boom, I'm on my face. I'm praying, and it leads to repentance. So if you're married here, perhaps for some, of, for some of the women, if you're married here, perhaps repentance for you can be, Lord, I am not able to submit. This is really hard. Let that hardness lead you to Christ. Men, let repentance be, I'm not able to die here. I'm still tied to myself. Let it lead you to the cross. Let it ultimately lead you to this Jesus Christ who we see as the perfect bridegroom. What does he do for his bride? All he does is get beat up, messed up, slandered, defamed, beaten up, hung up on a cross, bled out, died, crown of thorns, spear through his side, utter sacrifice. Why? Because he loves his bride. And we're reminded that's the one that this is ultimately all about. That's why we need Jesus, because I can't be that to the person that I love here. It leads us to Jesus. It points us to Christ. So let me ask you to stand up together with me right now as we, as we respond. And obviously in a message like there's just, just so many different points that you can be led into prayer right now. And I want to invite you to pray. And it's going to be different for everyone. Again, for some of you, maybe it's exactly what we talked about. You are married. And this is an opportunity for you to come in repentance before God, asking for his help, asking to be reminded again of, of the one who loves you. And that's how you can be the, the man or the woman you need to be. Maybe if you're married here and you're with your spouse, maybe you need to pray with them right now. Maybe you need to confess to them. One of the biggest things I've had to learn in my relationship with my wife is to be able to very generously say, I'm so sorry. Not make excuses. Say, I own that sin. Can you forgive me? I know God forgives me. Can you forgive me too? And pray together. For some of you, Maybe your longing is for marriage. And perhaps the reminder here today is that marriage is a very good thing. It's a biblical thing, but it's not ultimately God. And the things we're looking for to be cured in our life through marriage probably will not be if that's what we're looking to. And ask God to just remind you of the bridegroom you have in Christ first, that you could rest in that. Maybe for some others of us, marriage has been a very painful thing. Maybe you're here and it's just, it, it just identified with pain and loss for you. And can I invite you to the grace and the mercy and kindness of Jesus that meets you right where you are here? And maybe there have been mistakes in the past associated with marriage. Can you know the forgiving love of God? Remember those verses we looked at how he pursues and he goes after unfaithful bride that we all are and he will make us who we need to be. Rest in that. For some of you, perhaps you're not married to a Christian. If you're not married to a Christian, let's follow the scripture. And you love that person. You serve them. You, you do all you can to show them the beauty of Christ, that God might change their heart. Let's pray very honestly for that as well. So whatever it might be for all of us, let's just pray right now. Repent before the Lord if that's how he's leading you. And, and be led into the presence of God. Be reminded that marriage gives us ultimately a picture of God himself.